Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Let's open in prayer. Lord, um, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for this day. Lord, we thank you for calling us to worship this morning. Lord, thank you for our worship so far today, Lord, in song and in liturgy and in confession, both confession of sin and confession of faith. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, Lord, inspiring it. Spirit, Lord, we thank you for preserving it. And Lord, we thank you, God, that you have brought us here this morning to hear it. And so, Lord, we pray, God, that as we read your word and we continue in worship, Lord, through proclamation and through Eucharist and and more singing, Lord, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. And we ask all of these things in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. So in this letter, this letter to the Colossians, uh, what the Apostle Paul, at least I think what the Apostle Paul does is present us with a case for orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Now, this is the case for most, if not all, of the New Testament letters, right? But we're in Colossians, so this is what we're going to hang out, hang on, right? But orthodoxy means right belief. Orthopraxy means right practice. So if at least basically. So if those are two words that uh, are brand new to you, write them down because I'm going to use them a lot today, right? So orthodoxy, right belief, orthopraxy, right practice. I say that jokingly. You can all chuckle and write them down or not. But as we spend the next four weeks in this letter to the Colossians, what Paul does is helps us to grasp how we are nourished within the church through her orthodoxy and her orthopraxy. Last week, as we were closing out Isaiah, we we discussed how context in which a book of the Bible was written can really only help us so far, 
right? Because all of Scripture, it rises above its context to point us to Christ Jesus. Which is why all of Scripture is so always immediately applicable and understandable regardless of the culture and the time that it's in. Because God and his word transcend both time and culture. But the context of the Colossian church actually really does help us in our own time and how we can be edified by what the Lord has inspired here. But it can also help us as we nourish one another as part of the body of Christ. And even though we don't know a whole lot about the Colossian church, we do know a couple of things. One, we know for sure that Paul did not plant this church, nor, from our understanding, had he ever been there by the time he wrote this letter. We just read in verse 7 that this, this fellow named Epaphras is the one who was responsible for proclaiming Christ and founding this church. At least one of the ones to help found this church. But the other thing we know about the Colossians is that they were dealing with an odd, peculiar blend of heretical teaching that was rising within the church during this period. Especially compared to that of some of the other churches that we read letters to in the New Testament. We'll see this in more detail in a couple of weeks when we get to chapter 2, but Paul will mention the word philosophies in human tradition pretty consistently through that chapter. And in the first century, there were two major philosophies within the church that arose that threatened the truth of Christ. And we're, most of us in here are probably fairly familiar with them. The first one is Gnosticism, and the second one is a, from a group known as the Judaizers. For those that don't know what Gnosticism is, a basic definition is simply this. Because Gnosticism was very complex in their theology and their understanding of God and everything else. But basically, it denied the bodily incarnation, the bodily death, and the bodily resurrection of Christ. Because they denied the goodness of creation itself. To them, creation was evil. Furthermore, Gnosticism claimed to have a secret knowledge of salvation beyond what the apostles were proclaiming. Now, you can see how Gnosticism is a problem within the church during the first century, but not only then, but even now. Gnosticism still exists. It just has different names. The Judaizers, and we read a lot about them in the New Testament, they argued that Gentile converts should adhere to certain Jewish laws, especially the law of Moses and other traditions of Jewish life, in order to be truly redeemed. Again, as we make our way through Colossians, you'll see how this is also a major issue. But it is even still a major issue today, even if it's not from a group called the Judaizers. In other New Testament letters, we, we can quickly note that one church might be dealing with Gnosticism and another one with Judaizers. But Colossae was dealing with a unique blend of both of these philosophies, as well as possibly some form of Eastern mystical philosophy. All of which were really coming down to this. They were questioning the Colossians' understanding of who Christ Jesus is as well as what life and faith in Christ should look like. In short, this heretical blended philosophy saw itself as a supplement to apostolic teaching. We hear this some today in another testament of Jesus Christ. Because what, what this blended philosophy taught was that Christ was not unique in his divine nature, nor was he unique in his work. Because they argued that Jesus was not God, but rather just one of God's many mediators and messengers. They taught that sin resulted from a lack of knowledge that only they had access to and that only they could teach. And they taught that salvation was only attainable by learning this secret knowledge and in participating in their rituals and ascetic practices. So you can see how the context of the Colossian church really helps us to frame Paul's teaching for us today because we are also dealing with multiple philosophies within church culture 
in our own era, both within and without, that threaten our own orthodoxy and our own orthopraxy. And these philosophies ask us similar questions, right? Is Christ Jesus sufficient for salvation? Do we really have to follow Christ and obey his commands in order to claim his name? Or another one, and this is very modern today, does claiming Christ, doesn't claiming Christ make Christianity exclusive and therefore not inclusive or loving? And so painting within these broad strokes of orthodoxy and orthopraxy, let's just see if Paul's words to the Colossians can help us as we struggle with the philosophies and teachings of our own era. Now, considering the fact that I'm a pastor and I'm your pastor, then obviously I believe that, yes, they can, right? Because Scripture is God-breathed, right? But let's see how his work can help us understand who Christ is and the sufficiency of Christ's work. So just starting here in just the first two verses, what we have, Paul, this is Paul's typical introduction, right? If you've read any of his letters, most of his letters begin this way, right? He, he notes not only who he is, but what authority he presumes to speak on the topics that he's about to lay out in a letter. And he notes here that he is an apostle, which basic definition of that is messenger or disciple or even advocate. But the difference that he immediately brings out is that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. He was appointed to this role just like Peter was and just like James was and just like John were. Paul goes to great lengths in a lot of his letters to establish his credibility as an apostle. But the point here is that he has the authority to speak on the matters concerning faith in Christ and practice of faith in Christ because he has been appointed by Christ by the will of God to be an apostle. That's his point. The other qualifying factor in these first two verses, and then we're just going to move on from them, is that this letter is written, he says, to the saints and faithful brothers or brethren or brothers and sisters in Christ. To put it bluntly, this letter is written to Christians, right? It is written to the church. That's his point. And so as we go through this letter, we will clearly see language that is very helpful when we evangelize and talk about who Jesus is. But this letter, as are all of the New Testament letters, this is written to the church. It is written for the people of God. And this is why we are able to come to it and then paint with these strokes of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Because someone who is not a believer in Christ, who has not covenanted with God and has not made a covenant with his people does not care about the church's well-being. They don't care that the ch- if the church is believing rightly or practicing rightly. To use a really silly illustration, especially for anybody wearing glasses, they do not see the world through Christ-focused lenses. And since the well-being of the church is beyond their care, they don't care about the right proclamation of the Lord Jesus. That is why... This letter is for the church. It's for the Christians. It is for you, Christian. It is for you, church, because you are the saints of God. You are of his covenant people, and we are all faithful brothers and sisters of one another and with the church from all ages. Moving on then, let's go to what I'm going to call the meat of this letter, right? We're going to use the language of Hebrews. We're going to move into the meat of the letter here. And Paul notes, starting in verse 3, that... When they pray, they're always thankful that when they pray for the church in Colossae. And through verses 3 through 8, he lays out what he is thankful for concerning them. And then in verses 9 through 14, he, he switches a little bit to focus on what he's praying for them. Especially as they are dealing with this intruding heresy. And note first, just uh, and, and I'll, I'll reread some of this to help us 
pick up where it is. But note first that there is a Trinitarian framework to his thankfulness for the Colossian church. Listen again to part of this passage. He says this, And we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, skipping down, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us the love, your love in the Spirit. So thinking in terms of orthodoxy, right? So right belief and orthopraxy, right practice of the faith. The focus of Paul's thankfulness lays out for us two very important points as God's covenant people. First, orthodoxy always begins with the triune nature of God. Second, thankfulness should always be given to God in Trinity. So think about how this looks in our own regular worship and practice here at Christ Community Church. When we sing, when we pray, when we Eucharist together at the table weekly, when we confess or sing the creed, we make thanks for what Christ has done, but we do it in the power of his spirit, having been called to be children of the Father. When we give thanks to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are not only entering into an act of thankfulness, but we are publicly proclaiming the God that we believe in, the God that we confess in the creed, the God who causes us to love one another, and we proclaim our belief in the God in whom rests all of our hopes, both in life and in death. When we give thanks to God in Trinity, we proclaim with a singular loud voice that we believe in the God of Scripture, creator of heaven and earth. We believe that he is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God incarnate. We proclaim our belief in the spirit of truth and of peace who has been poured out upon the covenant people of God to empower them and to guide them into all the truth of who God is. Our thanks should be given in Trinity. And so with this Trinitarian focus of his thankfulness, notice what Paul is thankful for when he prays for the Colossians. And how really this helps inform our practice of thankfulness for one another. Listen again, verses 3 through 5. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, And of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So he's thankful for their faith, right? He's thankful for their faith in Christ. Considering that the Lord promises us joy within his covenant people, like we saw last week in Isaiah, we should not miss this simple act of joyful celebration because we should be thankful that we each believe in Christ Jesus as Lord. This simple practice of giving thanks for one another's faith in Jesus can bring abundant joy and peace to the church. But we see he's also thankful for their love of the saints. Remember, the Lord promises us nourishment within his covenant community. The Greek word that Paul uses here is the word agape, which most of us are familiar with, right? Without wandering down the rabbit trail of all of the different Greek words for the word love, because they all have different meanings, we should not miss the significance of his use of agape here. Because this is the same word that many in the early church used to describe the Eucharist. It was the agape feast. It was a love feast. The love of God towards us in Christ, the love of the church for Christ, and the love of each individual Christian towards one another. And this is also a love that expresses itself 
in the commitment to one another who call upon the name of the Lord. It is this care and concern, this weeping with those who weep, mourning with those who mourn, rejoicing with those who rejoice, concern over health and hunger or need and shelter. Paul rejoices with thanksgiving over this report from Epaphras because the love of Christ is being expressed from the Colossian church towards all of those who are part of the covenant community of God. We also see here in these verses that he's thankful for their hope in Christ or the hope that they have laid up in heaven. Notice, this hope itself is not an action. It's a result of their actions of faith and of love. This is a hope in something that is objective, something that's tangible. This is a hope in Christ that they have laid up in heaven that is experienced and expressed by all believers in Christ. This is the hope of Christ that cannot be stolen by rulers or authorities or powers or principalities. Out of this hope, out of this right belief, this orthodoxy, we put action to our faith and our love. We practice Christianity. And finally, we also see that he's thankful for their trust in the gospel. The gospel proclaimed by Christ and the apostles, the faith, as Jude says in verse 3, once for all delivered to the saints. But notice here in verse 6, which is where we're at now, that it's their trust in the gospel that is the reason for Paul's thankfulness. I'm going to back up and read verse 5 with verse 6. Listen to it again. He says this, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, and indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it, And understood the grace of God in truth. So again, just approaching this letter again through the frameworks of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Consider how right belief in the gospel informs the right practice of the Christian faith. Now that's for for a room full of people that are biblically literate and, and believe and trust in Christ Jesus. This seems like the most obvious statement of obvious statements to ever make. But trust in the gospel that Christ and the apostles have proclaimed is the linchpin to our whole approach to orthodoxy. Because without an orthodox faith in Christ, everything else is meaningless. And this is Paul's point. Because it is through the right understanding of the gospel that Paul will then use to frame the entirety of this letter with right belief and right practice. Because notice what he says here. He says that the gospel... It came to them, it's bearing fruit, it's growing, and it's doing so also in the whole world. So now we start to see, we can start to see really a thread that runs through our lectionary readings a little bit. Because last week when we finished Isaiah in chapter 66 verse 12, when God is promising us the peace and the joy and the nourishment of the church, he writes this in verse 12. He says, the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. We see how the peace of God, it overflows outwards from the church spreading far and wide like a river that overflows its banks in order to bring the glory of Christ to the nations. Here, we see the twofold work of orthodoxy and orthopraxy manifested through the Colossian church. And Paul is giving thanks to God because through the faithful work of Epaphras, his orthopraxy, the Colossians heard the gospel, they believed it, and they placed their hope in it. Orthodoxy. And then they began to express it through their orthopraxy. They began to express it by their faith in it, by their hope and their love for the saints. 
And the gospel is now bearing fruit and growing from them into the whole world. Theodore of Mopsuestia writes this. He says, Not only is their faith known throughout the world, but it grows daily. And then he says, Just as it grows daily in scope, it also grows in depth among you. Through the twofold work of orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right belief should always lead to right practice of that belief. But notice something else vital here in this verse. This verse also stresses the unity of the gospel message that is being preached throughout the whole world. The Colossians did not hear one gospel, and then the Thessalonians another, and the Corinthians a third. They all heard the same gospel of Christ Jesus. Listen again. He says this, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, and indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. This is why right belief in the gospel of Christ Jesus is the linchpin of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Because it is the unified message of the death and burial and bodily resurrection of the Lord that is key in combating this unique heresy that they're dealing with in this church. Because the apostles, and Paul in particular, they were not claiming to present their own secret knowledge. Rather, their message was the same wherever it went. That Christ Jesus, the Word of God himself in a body, had come in a body, died in a body was raised in a body, and will return in a body. And through that work, God calls us to himself. That was what all of the apostles were proclaiming. And it's through this proclamation of the true gospel of Christ that not only nurtures the church and edifies the body, but it is also the means of doing battle against the powers and principalities of this present darkness. As we battle philosophies, that seek to usurp the truth of who Christ is and what he has done. Our response is to just be apostolic. It's to be orthodox and to rely upon the gospel itself and all that it proclaims. Because as Tertullian would write, he said that the true gospel, it is the true gospel that spreads the true church of Christ Jesus. But now let's take a moment. Let's skip down to the second half of this passage and just look at some of Paul's specific prayers that he prays for this church, especially as they deal with these heretical teachings that are starting to invade them. Starting in verse 9, we read this. And so, there toward the bottom of your bulletin, and so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you, will, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So again, considering this in light of that odd, blended, weird, mixture, heretical philosophy that's starting to be peddled to them, what Paul is praying for here that we can understand here is he's praying for their continued orthodoxy, their continued orthopraxy, because we've already seen just in that first half of this passage that they have lived an orthodox faith in Christ. But now Paul wants to stress that he is praying that God would continue to direct them in their lives, continue to direct them in their orthopraxy, continue to direct them in their worship and in their their community for the edification of Christ and his church. So as, as he says in verse 10, so as or so that, so that you may continue, he says, continue to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, continuing to bear fruit in every good work. 
And notice here that just as the gospel is fruitful and growing that we read in verse 6, the prayer here in verse 10 is that the one who receives it and believes the gospel should also be fruitful and growing. Again, he says this, so that, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. This prayer is both for the individual and for the entire covenant community because where there is a healthy orthodox community, there should also be healthy orthodox nourishment through discipleship. But we see in this same verse that bearing fruit is not the only marker of Paul's prayer for them. He also prays for their knowledge of God. He prays for their orthodoxy. He goes on, he says again, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And this tells us something very essential for the church. Because orthodoxy is not, excuse me, orthopraxy rather, orthopraxy is not sufficient on its own. Orthodoxy is required for right orthopraxy. What this is, this is the other side of the coin from James. Right? Last, last ordinary time we went through the letter of James and we read where he, he encourages us to prove our faith by our words. Prove your orthodoxy by your orthopraxy. But both have to be held together in the right amount of tension. He tells us, prove your orthodoxy by your orthopraxy. But what Paul is telling us here is you need to also prove your orthopraxy is actually orthodox. And so note here that Paul's prayer, his prayer is that not only may they have the knowledge of God, but that their knowledge would be increasing. In the tense of this word that he uses in Greek, it suggests that it's not us who increases our own knowledge, but rather it is God who, is, who enables us to increase in the knowledge of him. What Paul is writing here in this prayer is the exact definition of what Jesus promises us when the spirit of truth would be poured out. That the spirit would guide us into all truth. That our knowledge of him would continue to grow and to increase. And then he continues in verse 11. He says, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy. So notice the specifics of his prayer just in this verse. Especially in light keeping in mind the false teaching that is starting to make inroads here in Colossae. Calvin writes here, he says, In this manner, Paul reminds them of their own weakness, but he also reminds us of the grace of God, because the power of God shows itself illustriously in helping us in our infirmities. When battling false teaching and the influence of philosophies that tempt us away from orthodoxy and orthopraxy, Paul's prayer here reminds us that just like all thanksgiving should be made to God, so too all strength and power depend upon God. Basically, we're not relying upon ourselves to practice the faith rightly. We're relying upon the Lord God. Which is why he prays here in this verse for their endurance and their patience and their joy. He doesn't pray that they would be relieved from their suffering or from their attacks against the faith. But rather, he prays that they would be strengthened to endure this suffering and to endure it in the patience and the joy of the Lord. Because as Matthew Henry writes, there is still good gospel work to be done even when we are suffering. And so as we come to verses 12 through 14, as we finish this out, if the gospel then is the linchpin to an orthodox faith in Christ, 
then we need an orthodox understanding of the gospel itself. Because the word gospel just simply means good news, right? It's not a unique word to the Bible. It, is, it was a common word in the era, right? So we need an orthodox understanding of what the gospel of Jesus Christ actually is, which is what, where Paul starts to take us starting in verse 12 and really through the rest of this letter. Building out of that strength here in verse 12, out of that strength that God has provided us for endurance and patience and joy, Paul reminds us to also give thanks to the Father because the Father, he says here in verse 12, has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And it's, it's that right there, that one phrase that begins our orthodox grasp of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it forces us to ask the question of how. How has the Father qualified us to share in the inheritance of his saints? The answer is, he has qualified us by his own will and his own work through Christ Jesus. Notice the way that Paul stresses this point here in verse 12. He writes that we are to give thanks to the Father, the Father who has qualified us. We have not qualified ourselves. No secret knowledge of salvation has qualified us. No qualification has come by keeping specific traditions or ascetic practices. The Father himself has qualified us. And so Paul uses this qualification from the Father in order to draw our attention to a right view of the gospel. He continues in these last two verses. He says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, the son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Chrysostom proclaims here and he says, the entirety of salvation is from God. No achievement finds itself in us. And the struggle against philosophies and false teaching that question the church of what truly redeems her, our orthodox starting point is always this. It is God who qualifies us for redemption through the work of Christ Jesus. But notice here in these two verses, Paul tells us that the gospel does not promise us that we are only, and I'm stressing the word only here on purpose, that we are only delivered to Christ and to God, but we are also, he tells us, transferred from one kingdom to another. We are transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. We are not just changed or redeemed for the sake of our own individual relationships with the Lord. We have been saved and delivered into a kingdom. We have been delivered and transferred into the covenant community of God, into the church. Chrysostom, his same, that same quote, it continues. He says this, God did not only show his love towards us by delivering us from darkness. And while it is a great thing to have indeed been delivered from darkness, it is a better thing to have been brought into a kingdom. So this is another encouragement for us to run into the loving embrace that the Lord provides us among his people within his covenant community. Because it is here where we nourish one another. It is here where we find joy in one another. It's here where we find the peace and comfort of the gospel that encourages us and also overflows from us into the world. It is in the body of Christ where we are reminded of the truth of orthodoxy and challenged to live out our orthopraxy. 
as we endure the onslaught of philosophies and heresies that threaten the unity of the gospel and the peace of the church and our faith in Christ Jesus. And so now as we come to the table to make great thanks for what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, be reminded that it is God who has qualified you. And it is God who has delivered you both from darkness and into his kingdom. Thanks be to God. Amen.